Welcome to Long Story Long. I'm your host, Lisa Curry. Today's guest is uh, so great. <laughs> Sayev, the founder and CEO of Metal Blade and the history, uh, and excuse me, the author of the history of Metal Blade, Brian Slagle. Brian, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's so great to have you on. Um, you know, I, I love everybody over at Metal Blade and uh, I've gotten to go to some cool concerts with Vince and Heather and, uh, and I just, you know, I was excited to talk to you about, uh, the record company and your book and everything where, so you, you grew up in Woodland Hills. Yes. I grew up in Woodland Hills, California. Correct. And when you were a kid, did you know you wanted to get into music at all? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I just became a, a huge music fan, especially when I, when I got to high school and just became kind of obsessed with music, not intending to be working in the industry or doing anything. I was just a big fan. I, I actually ended up, I was going to school for journalism. So I thought I would be oh. some sort of journalist somewhere. Um, and then I kind of started writing about the music. Um, I had the first ever heavy metal fanzine in the U.S. called the New Heavy Metal Review. R-E-V-U-E. Don't know why we did that. but um, <laughs> It sounds fancy. <laughs> right. Maybe that was it. Uh, I started writing for some of the, the English, um, you know, heavy metal magazines at Kerrang! And I kind of thought that that's where I was going to go. But before that, I was never mm -hmm. ever intending to work in the music business. Yeah. What, what did you think you were going to do? Yeah. I, like I said, I was kind of, I, when I was in school, I was really good at English and writing and all these sort mm -hmm. of things. So I just figured I would do some sort of journalism. Uh, I was a big Growing up, I played sports, so I thought maybe sports would be fun, something. Uh -huh. I didn't really have a, a, a necessary goal because I got mm -hmm. so engulfed in music by the time I was like about 16 is where it really turned, where like, like my, oh, whole, wow. my whole life became about listening to music. And I couldn't play anything, so it made me listen to music even more since I wasn't wasting time trying to learn an instrument. Yeah, I, think I am uh, so impressed with people that can play music well i i it looks like magic to me i'm mm -hmm. like how do you i've tried a number of times to teach myself guitar I, I took lessons with monty and i'm like what am i doing i'm so bad at this yeah same here i, I have no no musical <laughs> skill whatsoever i can i can barely do a four four beat on the drums and that's about where it ends <laughs> that's that's plenty yeah <laughs> uh so what got you? Were you into metal right away? Well, I was I was into a lot of different music. You know, growing mm -hmm. up, I didn't have a lot of access to music. Um, my my step my stepdad was into like Johnny Cash and Jerry Reed, so that's kind of the first stuff mm -hmm. I heard, that I, and I liked it. And then I, like Creedence Clearwater. But then one day, I, I think I was eleven, I was at one of my cousins' house, and they played Machine Head by Deep Purple, and something just went off mm -hmm. in my brain. That, what is this? This is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And from then, you know, Deep Purple became Black Sabbath and then, you know, on and on. And I kind of got into all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. I had a similar experience with when I was about 15 or 16. My dad was also into the same type of music. And uh, then I discovered Led Zeppelin on a school trip. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what's this? <laughs> and then that kind of opened up the floodgates for me for um, everything else. Uh, when you were starting to dive into music, was your family pretty supportive of you going kind of in that direction? 
Eventually, yeah. I mean, I, I was, it was just me and my mom for the most part and, uh, you know, working mom and nurse and stuff. But she was, I always did really well in school. I had straight A's. In fact, she said, I'll buy you a stereo if you get straight A's. So I said, okay. So I went and out and got straight A's and got the <laughs> stereo. So I was a good kid. I was really good in school. I never got in any trouble. I wasn't a, a party kid or anything like that. Um, and I just got really obsessed with music and her attitude was as long as your grades are, are good, you can do whatever you want basically. So, so she was super supportive, but when it, you know, fast forward to when it got to the point where I was actually, I was doing too many things at once. I was working at a record store. Mm -hmm. I was going to college. I was doing, still doing the fanzine. I was programming a local metal st stations, metal show, mm -hmm. and I was promoting shows in LA and all these different things. And the label kind of looked like it might kind of started to go somewhere. And I, I mm -hmm. finally had to tell her that I had to drop out of college. And I thought she was going to kill me, but she's like, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fine. If just, if that's, wow. if you think that that's going to work, then, you know, if it doesn't work, you can always go back, but yeah, give it a shot. So. Yeah. Well, I'm sure she probably saw how it was a really serious interest for you and wasn't just like some bullshit you were doing as like a half a hobby. Exactly. And I, you know, like I said, I was a good kid. I never got any trouble or anything. So yeah, she didn't. So worry. I guess it sounds like working at the record uh, record store pushed you in that direction. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I I, I, I got obsessed with this whole new wave of British heavy metal scene in England, which was the you know Iron Maiden and Saxon and Def mm -hmm. Leppard and you know, all so those bands. Good. Yeah, uh, so I became obsessed with that. It started. It's where the fanzine started, and. Uh, I had a, my best friend worked at, I was always going to record stores, you know, from mm -hmm. early on trying to find some of these records, which wasn't easy to do in Los Angeles, finding out, you know, English records in 1981. But, um, so anyway, my, my best friend was working at this record store. I used to hang out there all the time because I'd love to hang mm -hmm. out at record stores. And one night, uh, after, we would hang out after the, the store closed a lot and just listen to music and talk and whatever. And one night, the, you know, my friend left and the owner said, can you stick around for a minute? I go, yeah, sure. So he said, Hey, uh, we're going to let your friend go. Do you want the job? <laughs> and I was like, for, so for a minute, I'm like, I can't do that. It's my best friend. And then it dawned on me, Oh my gosh, I can work at a record store. So I, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll take the job. How did that go over with your friend? Uh, he was understanding. I mean, it wasn't the right gig for him, really. So he was yeah. he was pretty cool about it. And and that's when everything just really escalated, because then I could actually bring in all these records from Europe that I wanted to bring in. And I met all these other people that were into the same music at the store. And that's, that's kind of where things really kind of took off. That's so awesome to be able to bring stuff over and introduce more people to it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really cool. Honestly, like people ask me, you know, why I'm still doing it today and what's the motivation. It really is the same thing as when I worked at Record Store. It's so much fun to turn people on to music that you really like and have them like it. And that was, I found that at the store where people come in and, and they'd be into heavy metal, but they wouldn't know about Merciful Fade or they wouldn't know about Accept or whoever. Mm -hmm. And I'd turn them on and they'd go, oh my gosh, this is really great. So that was always fun. That is the thing, too, with doing something you love like when people talk to me about well you know one day you're going to retire i'm like why would i retire from doing stand-up comedy are you fucking kidding me this is so fun like why would you of course you still love the music it's not like it was a put-on because you were a kid or something you know yep 100 percent. 
So that's what made you then start the fanzine, just trying to get the word out? So, you know, so I got started the fanzine before I worked at the record store, just because mm-hmm. I was this, there were basically three of us in LA that knew about this music. It was myself, mm-hmm. my friend, John Cornerens, and then our new friend that we just met named Lars Ulrich. Oh. And so the three of us uh-huh. were, you know, into the music and nobody outside of the three of us knew that anybody else existed like the music. So we were just trying to promote it because we loved it so much. And that's kind of where the fanzine started because there were fanzines in England at that time as well, doing mm-hmm. covering it. So I thought, well, I'll start a fanzine. And John's like, I'll write for you. And then we kind of started from there. That's great. Was that... Um a pain in the ass to do that feels like that's a lot of work. You know what? It, it, it was, but it, we, we were mm-hmm. so passionate about it. We didn't care. Like we just didn't mm-hmm. care at all. And, and I got really lucky where uh, uh, one of my good friends father owned a printing shop. So, oh. and then I, I had another friend who's, I, I think it was his sister or something who was a typesetter. Uh, young kids look up typesetter, Google it. You'll see what that is. <laughs> Um, and so that made the fanzine a lot easier because the first, the first one I just did on a typewriter, uh, and kind of Xeroxed it. But once we kind of made it look semi-professional, it was a lot of fun. And then it was a lot easier because we would just put the stories together and then the typesetter would lay it out and it kind of went from there. Yeah. And I'm sure some of the bands, or I would guess all of the bands that you helped introduce to people, I mean, that's so invaluable yeah. For them, just to have somebody that's a genuine fan that wants to help them get out there. Sure. And at the time, there was really no other options. Like, you know, we had a Motley Crue ad in every one of them. And we had, you know, ads from like the Rods and a bunch of other bands that were like, oh, wow, there's actually a fanzine here that, you know, we could get some sort of recognition from it. So, yeah, yeah it was fun. It is interesting to because like I'm in a generation where I'm like, I'm kind of like the end of Gen X, the beginning of millennials where I didn't have, I didn't grow up with social media, thank God. Um, and even now I feel like it's a little wonky for me where I'm like, eh, it, it just feels weird. And it's, even though I grew up without it now thinking of like, what a fucking uphill battle for bands and like any entertainers or artists to get their name out there because it's, you're so dependent on someone else helping you. There's not, you can't do really much of that on your own unless you have the funds to buy ads and, and all that stuff. True. But there was a very intense network of people around the country and really around the world that were into the same music. Like mm-hmm. because there was no internet or anything, you know, we, we, I would get sounds magazine from England, which was the, the magazine that really kind of started the whole new reverse heavy metal thing. And you'd get that, you'd read about the bands and stuff, and it was invaluable information. But I, we didn't know that there were all these other kids that were all into the same music at the same time. I think mm-hmm. the best example of that was, so the night that my friend John first met Lars in the parking lot at uh, of the Country Club, which is a venue in L.A., the Michael Schenker group played there. And so none of us knew who each other were, but like all the guys from Harvard Saint were there. All the guys from Metallica were there. Like all these people that ended up, you know, forming bands and making bands later were all at the same show. Some other, a lot of people from the scene that came out in LA, like Motley and, and Rat, mm-hmm. like everybody was at that show. And little did we all know that, you know, we were all in the same music and we'd all kind of, you know, meet up later. So there's just this network of people that you didn't know existed because there was no yeah. social media, but they did. And eventually, 
we all kind of congregated together. I love that. When, so at what point did you decide to go ahead and start? I mean, I, again, something I know, but people listening <laughs> won't course. necessarily know. Like, when did you decide to start a record company? So I didn't really decide to start a record company. So I just decided to do a compilation album of L.A. heavy metal bands. Because I, first of all, when I first started working at the record store, I had no idea that there were any L.A. heavy metal bands. I just thought it was happening from England. And one of the guys mm-hmm. who used to come in and buy a lot of stuff from me said, hey, you know there are metal bands in L.A.? I said, there are? He said, yeah. And he was the guitar player for Bitch, which actually the first band we actually ended mm-hmm. up signing. So the first show I went to was Motley Crue and Rat on a, at the Troubadour in L.A. on a Wednesday for a dollar. And I was like, wow, there are. Get the fuck yeah. out <laughs> for a dollar. <laughs> for a dollar. I was like, wow, there are metal bands in in L.A. Good luck seeing literally any concert for a dollar. I know. But um, so I was like, wow, there are metal bands here. And then I found there all these other ones. And, of course, this is, you know, way before the Internet or anything else. There was no way for these bands to be heard. And prior to that, when I was in high school, I was a huge fan of – I was actually a huge fan of a lot of the new wave and punk stuff too. Like Mm -hmm. I saw the Go-Go's and Black Flag and all those punk bands, the Germs. Uh, mm-hmm. and then I also saw, you know, a lot of the new wave bands like Oingo Boingo and, but there's a couple other bands. There's a band called the Cats and another band called Exciter, X-C-I-T-E-R, not the Canadian version, mm-hmm. whose guitar player was George Lynch. And they were my favorite metal band at the time. And I thought they were, both of these bands are going to be huge and nothing ever happened with them. So it was frustrating for me. And I didn't want the same thing to happen to all these great bands I was seeing in LA. Mm-hmm. So I go, well, maybe, you know, Again, influenced by the new age of heavy metal, where people were putting out independent compilations. There, I talked to the distributors that I was buying all that stuff from, and said, "Hey, if I put together a compilation album of local LA heavy metal bands, would you guys sell it?" And they all said, "Sure." So that became the Metal Masker album. And again, I, I wasn't intending to do a record company; I just put it out to help the bands out. And then I made every mistake possible on that record. And one of the distributors said, "Well, we know you don't have any money because I had no money. I barely had enough money to make 2,500 mm-hmm. copies of that." They said, we'll give you a pressing and distribution deal where if you can bring us stuff, we'll manufacture it and distribute it for you. So, oh, well, I could probably do that. And that's that's really when the record label formed. That's awesome. So we, when you were talking about some bands you expected to get huge and then didn't, obviously, I see a lot of that in comedy. What do you think? Is there anything, any like one or a couple of things that hold bands back from really blowing up? In almost every case, it's they're surrounded by the wrong people, wrong managers, wrong record labels, wrong lawyers. Mm-hmm. It's the wrong people. Because I go back to, you know, all the bands I loved in the 70s that I thought were going to be huge superstars. And I've met a lot of them and talked to them. And it's the same thing, like bad managers, bad, you know, just not the right yeah. people around them. Like, why is Metallica one of the biggest bands in the world? Because everybody they work with are incredible. Top line managers, top line crew, top line, like all the people they work with are really great people. And look, Metallica probably would have been big anyway, but the fact they're surrounded by all these great people makes them even bigger. And that's any, I do the example of a car. You've got four tires on a car. And if they're all going mm-hmm. in the same direction, the car is going to go really fast. But if you lose a tire, you're not going to go anywhere. And it's same thing in music. The band, the manager, the agent, the label, the lawyers all have to be on the same page and moving in the same direction for it to work. If one of those pieces is missing, then more than likely it's just not going to work. That's such a great analogy. I never thought of it like that because you do see 
some people have huge teams and just the access that some rep reps have for their artists, it can change everything. I mean, there's people that I saw that I thought, well, for sure they're going to get on SNL. And then it turns out like their agent or manager doesn't, you know, know what the fuck to do. And it just, you're just kind of dead in the water. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's the same in comedy and, you know, TV movies, the same thing. It's just, you're, it's, there's so many people that have a lot of talent, but you, you've got to be in the right place at the right time, number one. And number two, have the right people surrounding you, and then you have a chance for success. Yeah. I think it's also, you know, I've heard a handful of times that you, your selection process is just whatever bands you like. And is it ever, Are have you always been just good at following your instincts? I guess because <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm like, it obviously pays off. And I think that, you know, some people on the industry side of things don't, they don't, they have this inability to trust their gut. Yeah. And then they only want to go after things that have quote unquote heat. And I think it kills the fun of it yep. a lot. hundred percent. That's one of the reasons why we're still completely independent because I don't want to have to listen to what anybody else has to tell me what to do. And yeah, I'm just really lucky that whatever I like, other people seem to like because that's even 41 years in, that's the philosophy of the label. It's like, if I like something, then we'll do it. It's a little bit different now where, you know, people bring, people in the company bring me stuff, but at the bottom, at the end of the work, at the end of the chain, you know, I've got to like it for it to, to make sense for us to do. And like I said, I've just been lucky over the years where a lot of the stuff that I like, other people seem to like too. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's also, that is a really great way to do things. Cause it's, of course, if you like something, somebody else is going to like it where like, I, I've heard so many people in the industry. Oh, I hate my client. I think they're untalented, but you know, such and such company likes them. And it's like, why would you, why would you work with somebody like that? Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of that. Even it was that way. It's been a way it still is in the music business as well. But yeah, I, I wouldn't want to work with a somebody that we didn't like musically and be somebody we didn't like personally either. Cause it really is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's cliched and, you know, all that blah, blah, blah. But really, Metal Blade is a family between the employees and the bands. Where everybody gets along. We're all friendly. There's not a lot of drama that happens ever. And that's what makes it so much fun. And it, being able to do this for so long is you don't mm-hmm. have, you know, there's always stresses and, you know, all those sort of things. But, you know, for the most part, everybody sees eye to eye and we agree on things. That is a fairly, fairly easy, uh, I won't say easy, but it's, you know, as easy as it can be in this business, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it's also it just makes work more fun. I don't understand why some people choose to add stress to their lives. It's like it doesn't have to be that way. That's why we're working in artistic fields so we can have fun. I'm, you know, exactly. I mean, it's still a business and there's, you know, that's, you know, probably mm-hmm. the, the hardest part of it. And that's the hardest part for me, too, is you know, somebody running a company and, and, you know, all these bands are, are friends. And, you know, sometimes you have to make tough decisions on a business level because clearly if you're not doing business the right way, you're not going to last very long. So that yeah. can get a little tricky sometimes and, and you know, cause some, some um, you know, phone calls and stuff that are a little 
I mean, I can state my case, and I think everybody understands it, but sometimes you don't see eye on every single thing. But you know, sure, for, of course. for the most part, we do. But it is a business, and that's kind of the, the, the bummer of it. And the music business in general is not a, a great place sometimes. So you know, we try to avoid that at all possible. Yeah. How do you feel about the way things are changing so quickly with social media and uh just the way it can be used as a tool. And, and also I feel like it can be frustrating sometimes because there's an expectation of, or at least for me, I feel like it can be frustrating because there becomes this expectation of, well, you have to have so many followers or, you know, people asking for numbers over, over other factors. Yeah. I mean, look, first and foremost, social media for us has been phenomenal. I mean, it's really changed the game for us Mm -hmm. because we now have, and the bands have a direct line to the, to the fan base before you had to do it through, Mm -hmm. you know, magazines or radio stations they are always one step removed. And now we have that ability to go straight ahead. That's why I think, you know, our first week numbers for all of our bands are really huge because, you know, we have so many people following us on all the social medias and the bands that everybody knows when the record's going to come out. Everybody's heard a couple of songs already. And, yeah. and the marketing aspects of those things have really helped so much because they don't cost a lot of money other than, you know, you've got to have yeah. a team of people doing it. So that part of it is is really great. Um, and I've been really lucky on, on my end of things where, you know, I've been on social media for like, a, I guess, like 10 years now. And I, I could probably count my negative interactions on one hand, really, which is, I know, kind yeah. of insane, but knock on wood. <laughs> <They'll> stay that <laughs> well, way. I think that also that also goes back to working with people you genuinely like, because I think when you are creating a little bit of drama in your own life, you just attract more of that from other people. And it's like, if you don't, if people know you don't fuck with that, then they tend to leave you alone. Yeah, no, uh, no drama, no drama all here. And you know, I have to. I mean, look, the, the heavy metal fans are amazing. They're great people. Yeah, they're all. We're all. You know, we're all. We're all the same. We're all just music fans, and that includes the bands and the people, the label, and the fans. So I think we all get along and have this really great community where just everybody's cool because we love the same music, and you kind of push out all the other things that that you know tear people apart. We don't. We don't deal with any of that sort of stuff. So I think that helps. Yeah. So how did Metal Blade get started then? So, yeah. So like I mentioned before, I put up the, the first Metal Masker album mm-hmm. and uh, Green World was the name of the distributor. They came to me and said, you know, we don't even have any money, but, you know, if you can bring us stuff, we'll put, we'll put it up. So I was saying, mm-hmm. okay. So I started going to all the bands again, no money, but I was like, if you could somehow record something, I can actually put it out. So some of the band, like Bitch was the first one that we did. We put an EP with them. Then shortly afterwards, Armored Saint, we did a, a three song EP with them. And then, you know, Metal Master 2 came. And then, you know, we started signing all these bands. The, the Armored Saint thing was really big for us because they, they were the first band that we'd work with that got signed to a major label. And they were really great in all the interviews and the press, you know, mentioning that they started with us and who we were. And that kind of got us you know, people that didn't know about metal blade or even this underground metal scene kind of would start mm-hmm. to hear about it. And, you know, then the label just started to grow, you know, found, found Slayer and started working with them and a million other bands that just kind of grew. But it was three years of me in my mom's garage in uh, Woodland Hills, California, with no air conditioning, by the way, 106 degrees in the summertime. <laughs> I think that's why I like the heat now instead of get so used to it. But, um, yeah. and then it just started, then it just kind of started to grow and, 
you know, it, it was never like everybody said, oh, what was the one moment? I go, it wasn't really a moment. We just kind of started to grow and slowly but, but mm-hmm. surely over time, it became like a, a real label. That is the thing, too, with some businesses. I mean, I, it, it's weird to me that some people are so like, this is my plan. And these are all the things that are going to happen. And they have all these like goalposts because so much of it is out of your control and in the arts and you just kind of have to go with the flow and build on each thing towards the next thing. Yeah. And, you know, look, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have, you know, any of that. So we still kind of don't today <laughs> necessarily, but I did, I, I did have goals though. I would, uh, I was always a goal oriented person. So I'd put goals uh-huh. up at like, you know, we want to, you know, this year, sell this many records or just, you know, just yeah. different things to accomplish um, over the years. And, you know, luckily enough, you know, I think, I think my list is almost empty at this point. There's not, not a whole lot of it left, <laughs> uh, which is good. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was, I guess it, it worked again, not because we had a great business plan or we we're doing the right things or any of that. We we're just all so passionate about the music and everybody that worked at the label so passionate about it and the bands too, that we all, it was like one big, you know, group of people striving mm-hmm. to make something happen. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be passionate about something to sit in a garage in the valley with no <laughs> with no air conditioning for years on end. It's like, I think it's so funny. People don't understand how hard something is to start at the beginning if you don't have like massive capital to begin with. Yeah, and I, I didn't care really. That's the crazy thing when I look back on that now. I'd be like, that's just really nuts. But I just I didn't care because I so love the music. Of course. That, you know, I was working, you know, 16, 17 hours a day and it was, it was fun. It was interesting. You know, I was doing, obviously in the early days, I was doing everything myself, you know, the artwork and just the whole thing. It was, it was, it was good background because I understood how things worked, how things get manufactured and how all that sort of stuff gets done. So it's good background mm-hmm. to have, but I, I just, I was learning. It was fun. And if I made a mistake, I just would learn not to make that mistake again and kind of take it from there. Well, that's also really invaluable too. To to when you build something from the ground up, you are a you know everything that's going on, and I think it's so important to have times where you do something and it doesn't work out, so that you know that like for yourself for the future. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I did that when I look back on that I think was was really smart was yeah I was learning from mistakes. Uh, cause I made a lot of them and, you know, I made a couple that almost bankrupted the whole company, but yeah, but then you learn from those mistakes and just learn number one, not to repeat them again. And also just learn to, you know, especially when there's change and there's been so much change in the music mm-hmm. industry over all these years, instead of bucking the change, cause the, the big mistake I made was I was loved vinyl, grew up with vinyl. When vinyl was about to go away, everybody kept telling me, you got to stop making vinyl because CDs are here and that's going to take over. I'm like, no, vinyl is never going to die. And then literally in one week, every record store across the country shipped back all the vinyl they had and only brought in, and only brought in CDs. And I Fuck. was at that point, I owed our distributor about $200,000. And oh I, boy, I had that's no, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. No way to pay it back. No way to get any, any income at that point, you know, we had, I don't know, five, six employees. So I basically got every credit card I could possibly get and uh, funded the company for about six months off of credit cards until it could finally <laughs> recoup the money. Wow. 
But it, well, I mean, but in the end, it worked out for me because I could never ever destroy the vinyl because I just loved it so much. So we had this gigantic warehouse in Arizona, and we had this huge wall of vinyl, and people come in there and go, "Why do you have all this vinyl? I, I can't, I can't bear to destroy it. I just can't do it because everybody else was destroying all the vinyl." And sure that's enough, crazy to me. Why would you destroy? What's the logic behind destroying product that you already have? Well, at that point, vinyl was done. It was done. CDs uh-huh. had taken over, and nobody ever thought vinyl was ever going to come back. It was just done. So everybody, we, you can't just keep all this product because it, it's you know it's taking up space in a warehouse. It's costing people money. So most people just destroyed it uh, and just moved on. I, I couldn't bear. It was like you know killing your killing you know, an animal or something or something that you love. I, yeah. I just couldn't do it. So I kept all of it. And then of course, when vinyl came back again, we ended up selling all of it. So it kind of worked out in the end, but, uh, but yeah, that was a huge mistake, but I learned from then to embrace whatever change is going to, is going to mm-hmm. come. And I think that helped us, especially going through like the tape trading stuff when all that things were happening instead of us, you know, being anti all of that, we kind of embraced it as much as we could. And that helped us kind of, get through that whole time frame. Yeah. Were there points along the way where working with certain bands or pulling off certain goals where you were like, holy shit, I can't believe we, I just pulled this off. I, you know, it's, I guess that's kind of, kind of keep thinking that way more or less yeah. just cause you know, it's like, but you're so busy and you're so focused you know, on work that you don't really think about those sort of things. It's like, okay, uh-huh. we achieved that goal. Great. Let's move on to the next one. Or, you know, we did, we're always thinking, at least I was always thinking forward and not really thinking, thinking behind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'd celebrate, you know, whatever it was, you know, first great first week or whatever you go. Yay. And then, you know, an hour later you forget about it. You're on to, to something <laughs> yeah, else. Keep it moving. <laughs> but I did, you know, when I wrote the first book, um, obviously I had to go back and kind of relive, everything telling the story and that's when you kind of go back and go oh wow that was kind of that was cool or that was cool when that happened and then you for a minute you kind of relive that sort of stuff uh while I'm still working so that was that was kind of fun yeah was there anything along the way that was particularly surprising like maybe a certain band taking off to a level that you didn't expect or someone I guess not taking off in the way that you expected yeah I mean you know I mean we always hope for the bands to, to do well. And, and you, you don't, you know, end up signing a band and working with them and not have the, the four, the four thinking that they can be big. Um, you want that to happen, obviously. So, so those sort of things, I don't think there's anything that shocked me. Like some band that we signed was like, Oh, well, that was, I mean, look, just the fact that this whole thing is big in the first place, um, is crazy. So that in, in and of itself is kind of wacky, but, um, I think the ones that I remember more are the bands that, that didn't make it. And that's kind of, again, I talk about it in the first book, uh, a band like Armored Saint that, you know, we put out this record, Symbol of Salvation, in 1991, which mm-hmm. is probably my favorite Metal Blade record of all time, just because, you know, they had, wow. they basically broke, I've been friends with them since the beginning, obviously, and, you know, they had gone to the major labels, didn't have the success that we all thought that they should have. Mm-hmm. Then they could t- their main writer and guitar player passed away from leukemia, and the band was basically broken up. But they had done all these amazing demos and said, guys, we can't, you can't let these songs go away. Like Dave wrote a lot of them. Dave Pritchard was his name. 
uh, wrote a lot of them. So let's 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 do a record. So they reformed the band. We did this record. We got Dave Jordan, who did you know Allison Chains and James to produce it. All this all this amazing stuff. We got Q Prime to management. Like everything seems set for them. The record's amazing, and we put it out, and it's 1991. And what happened in 1991? That's when Nirvana and the entire yeah. you know Seattle scene just blew out all metal and metal was not cool anymore. Mm. And the record did okay, but didn't do what we all felt it was going to do. The same thing with a band like Fate's Warning, got a really great mm-hmm. record. Also in 1991, it was just, it just met people just stopped caring about metal. And I firmly believe that if those records came out in 1989, they would have been really huge. So, so those are the things that I look back on and be disappointed with. That being said, both of those bands still exist today. They both had long careers. So you, you do have to mm-hmm. kind of look at it like a marathon and not a sprint. Like if they would have had, had a gold record then, would they be still doing it today? Because a lot of those bands weren't. So in the long run, I think it's good. And the music's lived on and, and both of those records are deemed, you know, uh, metal classics now. So so it, it, in the long run, it's kind of good. But in the short term, it was very disappointing. Yeah, that is really frustrating. It It is also wild how much just a couple of years can make a humongous difference. Yeah, especially then. I mean, we, we could see it coming. Like I like metal at that mm-hmm. point to me wasn't really metal. It was all the, the hair metal bands and all these bands getting signed that shouldn't be getting signed to major labels just because they needed the stuff. And it was all kind of radio friendly and it wasn't the metal that I liked and grew up on. So it needed to reinvent itself. And I love that. I love that whole you know, Seattle scene, grunge, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. And we worked with all those bands and did a lot of work behind the scenes with them, which is also great. So it needed to reinvent itself, but it was kind of a bummer that those really great metal records that came out in the early 90s just got so overlooked. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I'm, And also, what a, what a fucking excellent perk to, I mean, doing something you love and getting to go to all... I mean, obviously you're getting to go to all these like amazing concerts because just like the couple, I mean, I went to, I remember going to Guar and uh, King Diamond with with some of the Metal Blade crew. And I was like, those were still two of the most fun shows I've ever seen. And I'm completely removed from, I'm not part of the company, obviously. And it's like, I can't imagine some of the fucking cool concerts you've gotten to see over the years. Yeah, probably too many at this point, but uh, I'm, is there such a thing? I think there might be. I think I might be nearing that. But um, yeah, you know, you, you have a real frustrating, difficult day, and you know things don't go the way you want it to and stuff. And then you, at night you go to a concert and it just you forget all that because it's like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. why you're doing it. This is why you're you know dealing with stuff. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm I'm obviously very blessed to be able to have seen so many concerts and. It's crazy. I was trying to think. Somebody's asking me how many you've been to, and I haven't. I, I'm bad at keeping records. I don't keep tickets or anything like what? that. Yeah, I'm, I'm bad at that sort of stuff. Um, but I think I've been. I, I was kind of doing, tr- trying to do the math, and I think I've been to over five thousand concerts. Oh, absolutely. That's cur- that's that's nuts. Well, it was, I went to my favorite band is Iron Maiden, and I've seen them the most. I've seen them over three hundred times now. So that's incredible. Yeah, it's insane. Um, so I was actually saw them in New Jersey this year and I was talking with their manager and, and one of the guys who worked for the management company. And I said, I said, and he works with the, one of the guys who works in the fan club. I said, who, who's seen, cause they were asking me like how many times I've seen Iron Maiden. I said, I'm, I'm well over 300. I'm like, really? I go, yeah. So who's seen the most? And they're like, they didn't know. So they did like a, 
the, the, the fan club did like a thing asking people. So I guess they found some South American guy that's been to like, I think he's like 700 Iron Maiden shows or something. Oh my God. Like yeah. He would literally go on tour with them. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's, that sounds like a really great time. And also how do you, how do you find the time? My guy. <laughs> well, he's luck, not, luckily he's just a fan. Well, yeah. Well, luckily for me, it's, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's fun, but it's also work because whenever you're going to see a band, of course, yeah. it, it's work because you're there. Even if it's not your band, you're talking to all the people in the industry and you're doing things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of that stuff leads to actual business or just relationships. You know, it's it, it's a relationship business. So you want to see, talk to everybody and hang out. So it's it's fun to see. And I love seeing the shows, but it's also it's work, but it's usually fun work where you're not, you know, absolutely. Most of the time you're not having to deal with too many crazy people. But 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 it's fun. But yeah, it's uh you know, at, at night, I'm either going to a concert or going to a hockey game. So that's pretty much my, my life, more or less, pre-pandemic. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good time. <laughs> yeah, not terrible. Um, how do you feel about and how do you think it's going to change in the future? Just the way, I mean, that's too complicated of a question all at once, but just the way the pay structure has changed for bands with all the streaming. I mean, I know there's a lot of frustration on artist side. Well, but here, see, here's the thing. And this is, you know, uh, I try to explain this to people because, you know, everybody's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I mean, musicians are making more money now than, than they have in a long time. Mm-hmm. But it depends on your deal. So the bands that have been complaining are mostly the, the bigger bands or bands that have a lot of catalog that they owe the record company money and the record company won't, won't pay the back, which is in my opinion, not fair. And that's why they complain they don't make any money. But if you're with a record company that cares about you as an artist, then you're mm-hmm. going to restructure the deal so the bands can make more money because there's tons of money coming in from the streaming services. It's nuts. And it's growing yeah. every year. This is why, I mean, I've never seen it in my entire life where there are venture capital of people co- coming in and buying catalogs and labels and everything for a crazy amount of money because they see... Mm-hmm where this all is going and you know every year there's more and more and more income coming in from these streaming services it really other than the promotion doesn't cost you you're not manufacturing things or anything like we used to do with you know we're still doing vinyl and cds but not to the level that we used to so so your risk is a lot less than it used to be so there's money coming in i mean we you know we're giving six figure checks to bands every six months so it's That's really incredible. good, but we've also, you know, we do fair deals and even with the older bands, we've either gone back and, you know, erased their debt or, you know, worked on getting oh, rid of great. the debt. Um, yeah, it's, it's just fair. And then, you know, upping their, their rates for the streaming service. Cause you know, a lot of the, the major labels, like if you have like a, a general royalty base, you know, back in the day would be like 12 or 15% because, you know, mm-hmm. you need to manufacture things and things cost, you know, CDs and albums and stuff yeah. cost money. So there wasn't a lot of money left to go to the artists and the labels. But a lot of those major labels now have kept those same deals in place where they're paying these bands, you know, 15% of the streaming, which is insane. That's insane to me. Yeah. And that's why bands get upset and why they're complaining they're not making enough money because they're, they're not, you know, they're getting such a small amount. And, you know, every complaint is, oh, one stream is, you know, 0.001 cents. Yeah, but if they're, I mean, there are people that, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of streams. And what I try to explain to, to especially band guys, how things have changed. So back in the day, if somebody bought a CD or an album, that was it. They bought it. It's theirs. That's it. No matter if they played it once mm-hmm. or a million times. Well, now, every time somebody, play, every time somebody plays your song, you get paid. 
every time. So people play it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, the, yeah. that money actually builds up. So, so, so there's a lot of money to be made out there. And there's a, a bands. I mean, prior to all of this, you know, especially during the uh, the tough times of of the uh, streaming stuff, the uh, file sharing stuff. You know, when bands mm-hmm. were getting any money, it was all touring and, and t-shirts. But now I can say. You know, at least in our world that, you know, I don't know the exact amount, but, but, you know, we're now con- contributing, you know, 25, 30, 35% of a band's overall income now, where for a while it was probably half of that because there was just wow. not a lot of money coming in really. So, so it's a lot, it's a lot better now and it's going to be a lot better in the future because more and more people are, are, you know, getting subscriptions and it's more available to people and all that sort of stuff. So I think, th- I think from now to the future, as things go, Look, a lot of people, lot people smarter than me, who who's smarter than I. Sorry, even there you go. Uh, <laughs> who uh, whose job it is to forecast where industries are going to go, and you know this is their mm-hmm. job, and they do it for you know every industry. I mean, you know, the music industry is strangely enough one of the one of the industries that the people are saying is going to exponentially grow uh, in like five or six years time. So it's, I think. In the long run, it, and even right now, it's it's good. It's certainly better than it has been in a long time. Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, on your end, does it feel like things have kind of settled? Because as far as like everything changing so quickly over the last however many years, do you feel like, okay, well, we're, this is, we're going to be here for a little while? Who knows? I mean, you think that and then something will come up and, and you know, flip you for a, uh, for something, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, for for now, I think it is good, and it's good for us because we still, you know, vinyl is still some of that crazy. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think vinyl outs some crazy numbers about vinyl selling more than it ever has before this last year, and mm-hmm. selling more than any other stuff. And we still sell a lot of CDs too, so the CD hasn't gone away in, in our world, at least. So we still do a lot of the, the physical products. So for now, it's kind of in a good spot where we kind of know where things are at. And then, yeah, the streaming just gets bigger and bigger. So we'll see. But now the question becomes social media, which is some, one of our biggest forms of promotion and stuff is now that's kind of all over the map, you know, with all things happening at Twitter and people leaving Twitter and, you know, Instagram and all these new things. And now people are trying to outlaw TikTok. I mean, it's just, that's kind of, I think the things that more concern me just as, as a way to get, information out and how do we you know uh-huh. get the information out to people it's i um for me i really and i'm glad that that is a tool but it also it can be frustrating because there's no hr department if you have i've been having endless problems with instagram and i'm like well there's no one i mean i can write in <laughs> and then and then it's just like there's these mystery people on the other end who don't get back to you it's like okay well now what the fuck do I do? Yeah, it's it's hard because we've had artists that have like lost their accounts or had their accounts locked, Oof. and trying to get it back on any of those platforms is really, really not easy, as you found out. Anybody that's yeah. been blocked or been had their account blocked has found out. Yeah, uh, that is really, really fucking tough. Um, so as far as your book, uh, The History of Metal Blade. Books, plural. Books, yes, books. Because there's a new one, <laughs> Sorry. The new one coming out May Sorry, 6th. yes, the new one, I I should say. Um, as far as that goes, what, uh, I guess, what was the inspiration for starting to write this this new one? So 
The first one was kind of, you know, a lot of people said, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? Oh, I don't really want to write a book. Um, mm-hmm. But it was our, you know, it's our anniversary and we didn't really have anything else coming up. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to tell the story, I might as well do it while I'm still fairly coherent and uh, can tell the story <laughs> properly. So I did the first book and it was actually really fun. And the reaction, uh-huh. I, I, was bl- I was completely blown away by the reaction. I never expected it to do as well as it did or have, I love that. have so many people. Like, the response was almost unanimously amazing. And like all these people really liked it. And I was like, wow, I was, was not, I mean, I thought it would do okay, but in our world, it, you know, it is what it is. But it did so much better than I could, certainly could have ever thought. Even like the audio book was huge, which was not fun to do, by the way. Uh, (laughs) so, so I got a lot of people saying, cause it's a short book and I didn't, you know, want to bore anybody or anything. And, you know, I don't, Uh I'm just trying to tell the story. I don't, not trying to piss anybody off or tell any crazy wacky stories or anything. So it's it's a pretty short book and it's just the history of of the label. But so so the reaction was always like, Oh, we want, we want another book. And, you know, we we, we need to delve deeper into some of the bands and we want to hear about the obscure bands that, you know, all this sort of stuff. So it Mm kind of got to the point where, well, I guess. I might as well do another one. First one was was kind of fun to do. So so the second one is basically just, it, as the title says, it's called Swing of the Blade, More Stories from Metal Blade. And that's just what it is. It's just more stories. I go deep. Like there's a chapter on Armored Saint. There's a chapter on Fate's Warning. There's a chapter on, you know, Merciful Fate and King's X. And, you know, Cannibal Corpse, a lot of our bands that we worked with. And then there's a chapter about my, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my insane uh, love for Iron Maiden <laughs> Uh, there's you know, a story about some of my fun times with the Metallica guys over the years and and then a lot of stuff about a lot of obscure bands that we didn't I either didn't touch on in the first book or just to kind of, you know, because people I mean, it's the one thing I love about the metal fans is they're, you know, they love, especially now there's all this hunger for these obscure bands that that are kind of having this, this renaissance again now where they were dormant for 20 some odd years and because of the internet and streaming and everything, people have rediscovered these bands. So it's kind of fun to talk about that sort of stuff. And it's weird yeah. though, because I wrote the book before the pandemic and finished it before the pandemic. So we had to, like, Oh wow. Yeah. We kind of had to write a little bit about the pandemic in there just so it came up to date. And then we, then there was a paper shortage. So that caught, cause this book was supposed to be out like a year and a half ago. But we had a paper oh, shortage. Fuck. So and then our distributor of BMG, you know, they do a million books. So I had to kind of slot the time in. So hence why it's coming out in May of this year when it was written but prior to <laughs> March of 2020. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, it's uh, so funny to me to hear you say you kept the first one short because you were afraid of boring anyone. It's like I can't like that sounds so fascinating. I I mean, well, there's not a lot of books about, you know, record labels. It's not the most exciting, yeah. you know, it's not a, a autobiography or where there's any of that sort yeah. of stuff. It's it's just the history of, of a record label. There's not a lot of that out there. It's it's a, I thought it was, you know, kind of like a niche thing. It'd be fun for, you know, the hardcore fans, but I didn't expect it was going to do as well as it did. I was like, "Oh, wow, cool." Yeah. Well, I think that's also it to me, I think it's fascinating because you're dealing with so many different bands. So it's like for anyone that likes to read something written by a musician or something that's about a specific band, it's you get to touch on so many other ones uh, all all in the same book. Yeah, it, it was fun. It's, and it's, it's fun to tell the stories, too, because, it, it, again, it was kind of a, 
a fun time to reminisce about, you know, stuff that had happened. And like I said, I, I, you don't sit and think about those sort of things really every day, just do your work and whatever. So it's kind of fun to revisit that and do it. And then, you know, it's fun to promote the book. And the only thing though, that I'm not looking forward to is because the, for whatever reason, the audiobooks have to come out later. And I just did the audiobook for the first one, not thinking that anybody's going to care, but apparently I got an amazing reaction on that too, which is bizarre. But the you know, first book was, you know, I wrote about it's about half of it is in my narrative and the other half are quotes from bands and stories from bands. So it's uh -huh. about half and half. Uh, so I told BMG, I said, you know, I could probably get everybody that was in the book to actually do their audio part. They said, no, 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 too many narratives, just two narratives, just you and somebody else. So I got John Bush, the singer for Armored uh -huh. Saint, who does voiceover stuff to read the other half. But reading that part of the reading, my part of the book was torture. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why is that? It's just hard. It's it's hard for two reasons. Hard number one because when you when the book is written, it's written in your the way you speak, and it, it makes sense when you're reading it in your head. But then when you actually okay. have to read it out loud, it's like I don't really say things like that. So the first day was a real struggle, and I asked the BMG guys, "Can uh -huh. I paraphrase here like the way I would normally speak?" Oh yeah, I read it as that. So I'm like, okay, that's easier. But still, yeah. I have the whole, this whole book is all me. So I have to read the entire book myself, which is going to take a long time. So I'm not looking forward to that, but I guess I have to. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think people want to hear it in, in your own voice because it's, yes. you, See, add, you'll add different inflections to it than somebody else who's reading it as like a piece of history. Yeah. And it's so weird to me because I, I read like, Start before I wrote the first book, I thought I should start reading audio autobiographies just to, you know, read them. So, but I read them. I don't listen to them ever. Yeah. But there's this whole massive amount of people that only listen to audio books. And like I said, I had so many great responses to the audio book. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. I had, I, again, I had no idea that was going to happen, but, but yeah, there's a lot of people do. I, I get it. You know, you don't have time and you know, I fly a lot. So I read whenever I fly. So. It's easy yeah, for me, but same. yeah, a lot of people just put the audiobook in their car where they're driving and say, all right. Yeah. God knows some people have like, you know, two, three hour commutes to work. It's like, you got to do some, something. Yeah. Especially living in Southern California. Yeah. And, uh, also it's so nice that you, I, I'm sure your, your, uh, education in journalism helped with writing the book because then you don't need a ghost writer and you can just... Well, to be fair, I didn't I didn't sit down and write it. I told the stories to my friend Mark Eglinton, who's did uh -huh. Nurgle's book, and he did uh, Rex Brown from Bantera's book. He's done a bunch of stuff. So I basically, because I, I just, wasn't that I couldn't do it that way. I just didn't have time. Yeah. It would take me a lot more time. So what I did is I would just, uh, you know, I just, we just talk and I'd tell all the stories and stuff. Yeah. And then he, he put it together, but he's really great because he put it together in my, the way I would speak and the way uh -huh. I, in my narrative, when I read it, I go, okay, that makes sense. So, yeah. so he did, he did all of that sort of stuff. I just, yeah, I couldn't have, uh, I would have liked to have written it by myself, but sure. it would have taken me way longer. <laughs> I just don't have, <laughs> sure. I just well, don't have sure. the time. I'm sure talking it out with somebody too helps remember the stories. Cause I think that, that part, I'm like, how the fuck, I mean, I've had people say to me, remember the time we, and I'm like, no, no recollection whatsoever. Yeah. It was easier to do because we kind of did it in a chronological order. So I just looked at the releases and kind of brought back a lot of memories, but the second book, because it's like a lot, like there's a whole chapter on each different band. So I sent each, I sent the chapters to all the bands just to make sure, hey, is this accurate? Did I did I miss anything up here? Just to make sure. There's a few dates and times that 
I didn't get rides that they helped me, helped me fix. Yeah. So, so that was kind of nice just to get the feedback there. Plus, again, I, I really don't want to make anybody mad or, you know, because that's the whole thing with a lot of books. Like, oh, you should, you should tell it like it is or whatever. But I think my lawyer was the one that said on the first book, I was like, you're too nice. I go, well, I, I want to be nice. I don't want to, you know, yeah. the, the, the book's not meant to be salacious or anything. So that's the thing. It's like, you're also f- friends with these people and you respect these people. And I, I, as much as I'm like, I love a little bit of gossip. I uh, do also find it gross when some authors just like sell out their friends or people they've worked with to try to get some more sales. It's like, come on, is that necessary? Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't want to have those conversations. <laughs> so, hey, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Can you imagine running into them out in the wild after you know telling people's personal business or whatever? Yeah, well, I was a little worried about the the Metallica parts because I just told a couple of like fun party stories, like nothing too, too crazy. Yeah, but I said it to them, and and their management said they said no, they they would never want to change anything that you write. I'm like, oh, okay. Really oh, nice that's really nice. That's great. That's typical of how those guys are, though. I love that. Um, that is so cool. Uh, well, I can't wait to read this new book. And uh, when? What's the date that it's out? So everyone May, knows. Yeah, May sixth is out. So it's up for a presale on Amazon now. And there's going to mm-hmm. be a Metal Blade presale with. Uh, I signed a bunch of things, and there's some other some other stuff that we're going to put in with a pre-order for Metal Blade. So I think that's getting launched i want to say this week or next week but the amazon pre-order is already up um awesome well i think everybody should go ahead and pre-order that oh one last question i like to ask everyone if your childhood self like 10 year old brian could meet you as an adult what would he think of you uh i think he'd be shocked to the (laughs) core at uh what 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 had happened because i mean i would never have suspected in a million years even you know 20 year old self would never have expected anything like this i mean even just like the people i've become friends with that i was huge fans of like yeah friends with iron maid's manager and like you know if you would have told me that and you know, 1980, I would have said there's no way that's ever going to happen. So I think probably shock and disbelief would be. Uh, I love it. I love it. I feel like a friend of mine said recently, he's like, isn't it weird that, you know, so many of us are essentially taking orders from a teenager because like your teenage self drives you in a direction. And it's it is funny to think like, oh, I my life is mapped out by a 13 year old. (laughs) <laughs> yep pretty much pretty much <laughs> well thank you so much being for being on today it was so great talking to you thanks for having me it was fun Thanks so much for listening. Once again, that was Brian Slagle of Metal Blade Records. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Brian Slagle. And you can find Metal Blade Records on Twitter at Metal Blade and on Instagram at Metal Blade Records. And be sure to get Brian's new book, Swing of the Blade, More Stories from Metal Blade Records. It is available right now for pre-sale on Amazon and will be out next month. So wherever you get it, however you get it, make sure to get yourself a copy. And of course, I am Lisa Curry. You can find me on Instagram and most other places at Olympian Lisa Curry. And you know what? Please do find me on Instagram because this month, April 11th through the 19th, I am touring Poland. You guys, I've got four shows in four different cities. All of that information will be posted 
on my Instagram. So you're going to want to follow me there. Other than that, we'll see you right back here next Thursday. Thanks so much and goodbye.